and gentlemen, welcome to the Salty Pastor Podcast, a podcast here to help you know what you believe, why you believe it, because what you believe drives who you are, how you view the world, and how you experience life. My name is Jesse Mayer. I'll be your host, and we can't do the past Salty Pastor Podcast without the Salty Pastor himself. Please welcome Dr. Douglas Peak. Well, thank you, everyone. Uh, we are here for you. This podcast, obviously, as I said on Tuesday, it's free, and one of the reasons why we do all this work is because... What helped me discover who I am and what reality I'm actually living in, kind of, I know that's a metaphysical question, but it's an important <laughs> one to answer. Who are you and why are you here? And I discovered that through challenging myself on what I believed. I really had to ask myself, what do I think is really true and what isn't? And that's why we do this for you so that you can have uh, a perspective, but also the truth. You can have facts and data and things of that nature in a, in a presented in a way that helps you challenge yourself to think about what you really believe. I'm not trying to tell you what to think. I'm, I'm trying to help you learn how to think for yourself. Mm. Well, we're in the, the book of first John. first John. Uh, we've been studying that we've been learning, um, some main principles, mostly one that life can be senseless because the world is filled with nonsense. <laughs> yes. Uh, two John says we can only have, find real truth when we are renewed by Jesus. Yeah. And three, we need to identify false ideologies in order to avoid falling into confusion or nonsense. So if you could boil it all down into one yeah. main point, one main principle, <laughs> one main thing. <laughs> that we can take away from this letter from John, Pastor Doug, what would it be? I would say it's about confusion. It's all about confusion. It's, it's that these Gnostics had taken language of Christianity. Mm. They reinterpreted the meaning or the, they redefined the words. And then they pick and chose little factoids to try to, to support their claim. And it was just enough true to confuse people. Right. So people were really confused. And... What's happening is that this is going on today. And so I think the best thing to do is to realize how John wrote his letter to counteract the personal agenda of Gnostics. You see, they, they were teaching um, enough about Jesus, but they're propagating falsehoods. For instance, one of the things they taught was this. They said is that when Jesus was a boy, he made two pigeons out of clay, and then he brought them to life. He was playing with one of his friends, and his friend died, and he raised him from the dead. He, um, he did various things of that nature, these, these his folklore, you know? Right. And it had nothing to do with the actual miracles of Jesus. Uh, they went on to say things like Jesus and Mary Magdalene was his concubine. And they, they did all these kinds of really weird things. And they did it because they were trying to create uh, enough believability. So the Gnostics in some ways, uh, and people of various, uh, start of various religions have found this to be true, is they were very similar to, Gnost, uh, to uh, illusionists today. Okay. You know, you do enough to make it look like, oh my goodness, that's real. Right. But it's actually an illusion. It's not true. And so what John's trying to do is teach us how to operate and how to navigate through all these illusionary things that are constantly confusing us as people. 
Okay. So that's what it was all about. So today we see that uh, Gnostics are doing the exact, I'm not the Gnostics, but modern day Gnostics are doing the exact same thing. They're trying to create confusion in order for us to uh, not be able to discern what is really true and what really is not true. And I think predominantly you see it, you know, in political ideology, selfhood ideology, political ideology, and we'll address some of these things later on. So I've been getting a lot of different information from a lot of different sources my entire life. I'm a millennial. I'm kind of one of the most confused generations uh, <laughs> so far because of the way, you know, the invention of internet, the way media has yeah, been yeah. propagated, all these different things. Um, and so it's, I'm constantly trying to ride this line and trying to discover what is really true and what's, yeah. what's, and try to demystify these things because I grew up in Idaho. I had uh, a conservative upbringing. I grew up in the church and then I went to college, did college in a fairly conservative area in Southern Utah. But then when I moved out to Oregon, mm-hmm. it was a whole new world. Yes, and then I was on tour world. and met a lot of different people with a lot of different perspectives, which had ended up um, raising a lot of good questions about different things that I had believed from my yeah. childhood that I had not really discovered in myself what I really believed. It was, mm-hmm. oh, well, grandma said this, or the pastor said this. And I, it took me a while to really work through those things. But the only reason I was yeah. able to work through those things was because I had a base core of beliefs. And yeah. then I, mm-hmm. I, I, I debated, I, I worked through those things. And so there was a lot of times when probably at the lowest periods of my faith, when I was out on tour, I felt the most confused because then that's when I started going, well, maybe what I know isn't what I know. Mm-hmm. And when mm-hmm. you get into that headspace, then literally anything anybody's telling you starts to go, well, maybe that's true. Maybe that's true. And then yeah. I had, I had a reconnection and really drilled down and, 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 and did that. So mm-hmm. I think that's the most important thing, but those were the hardest points in my life was when I yeah. didn't have that clarity and I yeah. couldn't have, objective truth. Mm. So what principle does John give us that's going to bring us clarity in our confusing times or just in life in general that's going to kind of blow through all this fog and this mist of nonsense that we're surrounded with on a daily basis? Well, you know, he kind of concludes it in chapter four and then in chapter five, he says it again. He says, this is the victory that has overcome the world Mm. and it's our faith. And it's because of our faith, he is in us. And he is greater than he who is in the world. And so I think that uh, we have to really challenge our faith. And a lot of people use the word faith to mean trust and not worry about it. You know, I'm going to be faithful, not fearful. So if something bad goes on, I'm not going to freak out and have anxiety. I'm just going to trust God that it's going to work out to the good, you know, eventually. Right. But faith also is the assurance you know, in, in Hebrews, it's, it's the assurance and assurance is a sharpening of your mind and your convictions. Mm. And so I think one of the best things we can do is sharpen our minds, sharpen our convictions about what we believe and know to be true about, uh, the reality in which we live. In other words, basically saying, well, this is what a human being is. And this is what a human being isn't. This is why human beings do what they do and don't do what they do, you know, human nature. And this is how 
uh, God says you heal that, fix that, set people free. So I have to kind of reorient my perspective because of my faith on how I view the reality in which I live. And if I don't do that, I'm going to be very confused. And I think there are three main areas of confusion today that are very powerful, that are really primarily creating so much confusion. The first one is in the area of sexuality. I think sexually, uh, people in all Western cultures, particularly America, are extremely confused. And young people are more and more confused. Uh, sex is ingrained in our DNA. It's a part of who, uh, or part of what God placed within us when he created us. And our, our sexual drive is an invitation from him to be a co-creator. You know, where does a a human being come from, you know, right. and where does the soul come from? We, we, when, when a, a husband and a wife come together and they conceive a child, they give birth to that child and that child develops a soul, right? Mm. And Christ died on the cross for that soul. Isn't that? And so you've, you as parents have co-created with God, right? Right. And I mean, that's a phenomenal thing to think about. And so it's a very powerful drive within us, but like all really wonderful, blessed, powerful things within us, Satan corrupts it. You know, he Mm. can corrupt that drive and it's the perversion of the drive that really kind of hits you, you know? Uh, So if I was going to corrupt the drive, uh, I think this is how I would do it. First, you'd want to fan the flames of the drive. You'd want to create an environment where it dominates everybody's thinking, everybody's focus. You want to convince them that they can't live without it. Or, or uh, if you don't listen to what it's telling you what to do, then you're not being your authentic self. In essence, what I would do is I would turn my sex drive or everybody's sex drive into a God to worship. And if you look back out throughout history and religious history and everything else is sex has always been a God that people back in, you know, biblical times, it was all about fertility gods, you know, and, and even today you can go down to Jamaica and buy fertility goddess idols on your trip down to Ocherias. If you want, you know, stop off the cruise ship and buy a fertility goddess and put it on your mantle at home. So This has been a part of human nature for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years. But by doing that, what you do is human devotion, human ceremony, human ritual, human worship, even fanaticism all surrounds the worship of the sex drive as a God. And that's what I call pornography. I mean, pornography is the church of the God of fertility or sexuality Mm -hmm. today. Uh, I'm not sure if I trust what people are saying when they talk about it because they're trying to mainstream it, you know, but I do believe the trend that porn is growing and it's growing most quickly among women. And these are girls, you know, young girls and uh, preteen girls. And so all this is growing Uh, and it's part of it's because the delivery system is so easy today. Uh, but it's just becoming more prevalent. Uh, the journal, uh, JAMA, um, which is a medical association journal reports that pornography changes the structure of a person's brain. It actually changes the neurochemical structure and pathways of your brain. 
It also is proven to destroy the virility of men and men's ability to bond with other human beings, particularly women. Mm. So if I were to undermine and create confusion in the world, I would use sex to do it. Because once you're able to fan the flames of this drive and treat it like a God and worship it with all of its requirements, then I would create confusion about what a male is, what a female is. I would create confusion about who we're attracted to and where attraction comes from and how you can build an identity around it. And then, and then now what we're seeing is uh, an explosion of uh, transgenderism and what that really is. From 2017 to 2019, there has been a 220% increase in LGBTQ characters in children's cartoons. Gosh. In Cartoon Network and in uh, Nickelodeon, there's been a massive increase in characters that do this. Now, what's really fascinating here is that when you study Gnosticism from the first and second century, the Gnostics perverted women's roles. They, what they did is they tried to take women and change them. And one of the things they did is they decided that we were going to use, that they would use women's menstrual blood for communion in their worship services. That's a lot. That's a lot. <clears throat> Isn't that strange? And we look at that and go, whoa, that is so crazy. Well, guess what? Amelia Clark, Game of Thrones actress, has a new miniseries coming out. And her, and her character has superpowers. And guess where she gets her superpowers? From her menstrual cycle. Okay. <laughs> this is what she says, and I quote, for women, the bloating, the hair growth, the mood swings, the acne, all of it. We hate that when it happens. Speaking for myself and everyone I've ever met who has had a period. So what if we turned that around and made the period something that we can feel as this unique, crazy, superhuman thing that happens in our body? When Maya is scared, she goes invisible. When she's angry, she has superhuman strength. She can swing like Spider-Man from the hair, her hair, armpit hair. That is just downright weird. But the thing is, is what's amazing is how close it is to first and second century Gnosticism and their practices. That the, the church of sexuality is we have the freedom to do whatever we want. We have the freedom to impose our religion of sexuality on you. And if you're against it, you're a heretic. And that's where Gramsci's theory, if you're not familiar with Gramsci, he was an Italian philosopher. And he wrote, he was also a fascist uh, with Mussolini. And as a philosopher, he wrote, that the most powerful way to control people is not through government force, but through what he calls a cultural hegemony, meaning cultural pressure. And if we can get everybody to buy into what we believe, our values, and then what we do is we force that on everybody and shun people who don't. So I would use Gramsci's cultural hegemony to shame, cancel, marginalize anyone who does not worship in the church of sexuality. And uh, similar to the Salem witch trials, or the Spanish Inquisition, I would use my ideology, this sexual religion, to get rid of anybody I deemed a heretic, burn them at the stake. Mm. So, you know, the fact that I talk about these things on the Salty Pastor uh, a little bit is I'm shocked that I'm not being canceled by, uh, you know, Apple Podcasting and YouTube and everybody else because 
in their terms of service, the things I'm talking about violate their principles. And so it's really kind of interesting because I don't worship in the church of sexuality. Uh, I, I am in the church that has Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of all. So I think the, the confusion today that so many young people are facing is because of the overt sexualization of them. And you see this happening, for instance, uh, uh, one of the most expensive prep schools back east named Dalton. It costs you $55,000 a year to send your little preschooler there, your second grader, third grader. And most people have two or three kids, so it's pretty expensive. Right. Well, they had a health teacher there, and she was teaching first graders, seven-year-olds, how to masturbate, how to touch themselves and pleasure themselves. And so that's what this prep school was teaching. There's uh, the Library Association has drag queen reading hour. You know, it's kind of falling out of fame because a bunch of those drag queens that show up have been sexually molesting the children and they're being charged with pedophilia. And so, but a lot of people are not aware of this is that there's an organization out there. It's called NAMBLA. It's a North American or the uh, uh, National Association of, of Man Boy Love. National Association of Man Boy Love. Got it right. Sorry, uh, I stumbled over that, everyone. But what they do is every year is they submit legislation uh, in state legislatures to lower the consent age for sexual contact because they want to be able to have contact with sexual minors. And so the transgenderism movement, a lot of people are not aware of this, that the primary purpose, I believe, of the transgender movement is to lower the age of consent sexually for kids. Now, the reason we have an age of consent is because kids don't know they, they're not mature enough to know what they're consenting to. Right. They, they have no idea what sexual uh, uh, diversions from what we would consider sexual norm- normalcy will do to them psychologically throughout their life. But in transgenderism, you know, you can go to school, you can talk to your counselor, your parents will never know, and they can, they can convince you that you're transgendered when you're in the fourth grade. And they can put you on hormones and puberty blockers and all these things without parental consent in some states. And so people are like slowly waking up to this and go, uh, isn't this child abuse when you do this to a kid? Yes. But the advocates, the priests and prophetesses, from the church of sexuality will do anything to propagate their ideology. And they want to use your kids to do it. And they know if they can get your kids addicted to it, if they can fan the flames of this drive, that's what's going to happen. It's the exact same thing is why a drug dealer shows up on the elementary school program. He puts his drugs and candy and gives it to kids for free because he's generating a new market. Mm. And so it's the exact same thing. Well, let's talk about our second biggest area of confusion. Uh, what you'd said we had three. What was your second one? Well, this is in politics, you know, and our society and how it's structured. History has very few axioms, meaning truths that are always true no matter what, mm. you know. Uh, but there are a few. And the first one is no society has ever existed on the basis of moral relativism. It's never happened. Communism and socialism in its forms are slavery and evil. There's no way around that. It's an axiomatic truth from the lessons of history. 
societies and nations can only build on commonality. This is John Locke, the political philosopher's notion of a social contract. That is, is that there has to be some agreement at some level of how we're going to be citizens together. So these are axiomatic truths. And nations, empires, they all fall when they become unstable. That's another axiomatic truth. So if, it, if something becomes unstable, then you can tip it over. You can enact a revolution. You can do all these types of things. Consequently, if you want to change or bring about revolution, you must create instability within the nation first. Uh, Orlando Figues wrote a book called The Russian Revolution, 1891 to 1991. It encapsulates this principle perfectly. As a historian, he shows that during the 1600s, 1700s, and 1800s, 300 years, Russia was one of the most stable nations and empires, economically prosperous in the world. All of this other stuff that was happening down kind of in France and Italy and all of these, all of these things that were going on, it wasn't happening in Russia. It was extremely stable. They had a massive military, an army. Anybody who tried to go up there and attack them, they would just destroy them. And economically, it was very stable. But in 1891, Russia was hit with the worst famine ever. It was a drought, massive drought. Mm. And so it was really bad. And that's when... The Bolsheviks started to try to destabilize the country. And what they did is they took partial truths and half truths, according to Figueres, and they created stability and they created class warfare and social warfare. They created all of this stuff, right? right? And then what happened? But it took them 25 to 30 years before they could actually enact their revolution. So it took a long time of Mm. creating instability. Fast forward to the 30s. What did Adolf Hitler do? Is he create, he said, look, we're in a mess because we're economically destroyed. And then what he did is he created national identity by creating a fight with the communists and the Jews. And so what he did is he created instability first and said, I'm the answer to the stability. And so when people propagate fear and propagate instability, then whoever has the answer, people are like, I'm so tired of all this instability. I'll try that. Right. Right. And that's where revolution comes from. Now, today, there are various groups that are attempting to destabilize American society in order to revolutionize society. And let's just take one group in particular. This may surprise everybody, but the media, for example. Mm. The media is trying to destabilize our society. Now, what I mean by that is I do not believe there's a media conspiracy primarily, you know, out there that they all get together with the Illuminati and how can we have all of our media companies destabilize society so that we can take over the world. Uh, and the main reason I, I don't believe that is because media people are not intelligent enough to get together and come up with a plan like that. <laughs> The main reason, though, is salty, (laughs) salty. The main reason, though, uh, I cannot deny the fact that people always respond to incentives. They always respond to incentives. And the primary incentive in our media today is to light something on fire and watch it burn. Mm. You know, somebody used to say about preaching back a a couple hundred years ago says, if you want to attract a crowd, just light yourself on fire. People (laughs) will come to watch. And so. So the thing is, is that you can't trust anything the media is framing or saying. You have to find a place where you can get information. I'm not saying don't do that, but 
what you want might want to do is try to figure out is that I can't even trust the frame, even if it's people that you really think you trust. Right. Right. You, you have to be careful because their incentive subconsciously is to create a problem so that you're concerned about it so that you'll tune in the next day and find out one of the, so one of the best things you can do if you want peace in your life is turn off the news, yep. just quit watching it. And, uh, so that I think political social society is being rent because people who want to make money in our society have an incentive to polarize society and create a fire so that everybody else around it is, you know, on fire and trouble, but they're reporting it so that they can make more money and have more views. Well, and I see that, that, uh, polarization in a lot of my friends and family and just as I've been across the country, like I said, I grew up in Idaho, then moved to Oregon, then traveled across the country. So it's like, I've got friends on Facebook of all political spectrums and mm-hmm. thought processes. And then on top of that, I work in creative arts. I, I study other media, things of that nature. And so I'm constantly seeing politicians and media people trying to put their own spin on this thing. That's definitely going to kill us all, ruin the world, yeah. destroy yeah. the country, whatever. And they all do it. All of them. Yeah. This is not a one side is doing everything. It's they all have an agenda. They're all wanting to destabilize something so that they can then prop themselves up as the solution. Yeah. And I see a lot of my friends who get really wound up over these things and go, I need to go fight this battle because, you know, so-and-so on Fox News or so-and-so on MSNBC told me that this is the thing that's happening or such-and-such president told me or whatever, like... It's all of them want to be your savior. So they're going to create a problem so that they can save you from that problem that they created, whether it's a actual one or it's a phantom problem. So it turns into this, us all just arguing with each other over phantoms of these people that just are doing it as a power play. And they're like, it's not, this isn't a real thing. They're just trying to light you up so that they can be your firefighter and save (laughs) you. you. Yeah, they can save you. There's only one person who can save you. Yep. Jesus. Yep. So um, we're getting towards the end of this. Uh, let's quickly talk about number point number three before we wrap up. Well, this one's a little more abstract. It's kind of hard to uh, articulate, uh, but I will give it the old college try. I believe in you. Done. You believe in me. But this has to do with the French philosopher Jacques Rousseau, who wrote extensively. And his philosophy is the predominant philosophy of modern day Gnosticism, which is the predominant philosophy of how our media all of our cultural elites, everybody comes out of Ivy League schools, doesn't matter what letter you have politically after your name, everybody thinks this way. And so uh, it's really, in, uh, it's really influences everybody. And the, what, what, what Rousseau did, and let me try to boil it down to this, the underlying question was, how do you know the you that is you? Okay, whether you know it or not, you are trying to figure out who you are and what makes you happy or fulfilled. Right. Right. Everybody's on a happiness quest. Now, very few people think in the terms that Rousseau thought in and very few people think in these terms each and every day, but what it's a big deal to philosophers, right? You know, they always, they're framing this and what they're, what they're doing is they are actually describing what's really going on from an objective viewpoint. And Rousseau taught that what is in you is what is authentic. In other words, the pure you, the real you, 
is what's inside of you and society is the thing that ruins it. Therefore, whatever you think the you that is you, that means who you are or what you are is authentic. And if society does not celebrate and affirm whoever you think you are, then society is the problem. Okay. Now, almost everyone rejects this idea except in one area, sex. Everybody rejects this idea except for in the area of sex. Now, I mentioned before Aldous Huxley wrote a book, uh, Brave New World, and it's a dystopian view of the future. And in it, he, he wrote this back, gosh, I don't know, years, not quite 100 years ago. But he said there's going to come a time in this dystopian future that that if someone wants to have sex with you and you don't have sex with them in the way that they want, then that's an insult. Mm. So see, he prophetically saw, even though he was an atheist of all people, saw right. where this Rousseauian ethic was leading American society. And so almost everybody, though, rejects the idea except for when it comes to sex. For instance, if someone comes up to you, uh, let's say you sell cars for a living, you know, or you own a dealership and someone comes up to you and says, hey, you're going to sell me that car for half its value. What do you say? You're a nut. No. <laughs> yeah. It, you go to a, do a hospital or a doctor. You're starting to see this play over into healthcare a little bit. But before you go see a doctor and say, hey, can you help me? And the doctor says, here's a prognosis. You need to compensate me for that. Now we're saying, no, you need to treat me for free because it's my right. right. See, it's starting to see how it's time kind of shift a little bit. Yep. It's shifting. Uh, we go down the list on all this. We just don't have time to. So the, the only place that this idea makes any sense at all is when you couple it with the sex drive. So if the sex drive is worship and exalted, then your drive to have sex with anyone you want in any way you want is the authentic you, the real you, the you that is you. So you had better listen to that you that's inside of you or you will never be happy. The reason why you're a teenager and you're despondent, the reason is because you're you're attract is you're 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 trying to date people that uh, are the wrong gender, or you're this or you're that, and these ideologies are so destructive to teenagers because this is just the most you know puberty hormones are raining. It's all kind of crazy and confused anyway, right? Right. And so this is uh, if you were from the church of sexuality, this is perfect breeding ground for you to proselytize and recruit people that are going to support your church, your ideology for the rest of their lives, because they're going to be confused and mixed up the rest of their lives. But what happens is if there is a poor outcome because you listen to them, the church of sexuality, if you've listened to them and there's a poor outcome, let's say, well, I was in middle school and I was just feeling awkward. I felt like I never fit in. Okay, who has everybody's everybody's felt that at some everybody's point. Everybody's felt that way at some point, especially middle school. Yep. You know? So you don't feel that way. Uh, so you feel that way. And so someone says to you, well, that's because you're a man uh, trapped in a woman's body. All right? So even though you're a woman, you're actually a man. You know, gender is socially constructed. So what we're going to do is, is we're going to help you become a man. Okay, so they start down that process. And then they find out that the outcome is horrible. And so then the answer from the church of sexuality in our culture today is this. Well, that's not your fault. And that's not what you're pursuing's fault. It's the society's fault. 
there are these people out there who are transphobic and there are these people out there and that are religious and these people hate you and because they hate you then they're false they're trying to stop you and that's why you're depressed that's why you're confused that's why you're doing that and it's just so heartbreaking because so for so many of these young people the reason they're confused is not because of the reaction to what they're pursuing. It's because of the lie that was told to them up front. Right. So I think that's one of the things is this, is that like you, you look at, you look at when you really deep into this is 40%. And this is just a horrible, horrible thing. 40% of people struggling with transgenderism commit suicide. Mm. I mean, that statistic is off the charts. But people who buy into Rousseau's principle, the church of sexuality, will say, this is because of transphobia. That's why you, they kill themselves or they can't you know, find freedom from depression and anxiety and bipolar th- disorders and things of that nature. However, when you look at the facts, they point in the opposite direction. The rate is the same before transition and after transition. When after transition, after the surgeries and all the hormones, a transgender person looks exactly like the gender they're trying to adopt. They dress that way. So if, if a person is out there walking the street, you, you wouldn't know that they used to be a boy, male, and now they're dressed up like a female, right. you know, after the surgeries and everything. Consequently, there's no connection between how you're received in society after you make the transition to these, to these suicide rates. You go to societies out there that have embraced it fully, the suicide rate is the same. The depression, anxiety, bipolar disorders are the same. So, so the, what people are saying is true is not true at all, and it's destroying the lives of people. And so I'd say these are the three major battlegrounds. Uh, selfhood. Right. Sexuality mm. and political social uh, that the enemy is using for one purpose and one purpose only to create confusion. Because that was the one thing that I said up front of this podcast. It's all about confusion. The more confusion we sow, the more unstable it becomes. The more unstable it becomes, the more it allows us to tip it in whatever direction we want it to go. So and that's why I think John's letter is so important. Because it, what it tells us is this. It says, this is who God really is. God is love. Right. What you think you're pursuing, that's not love at all. God is love. Mm. It tells us who we really are. We are broken, and we are in need of healing in our souls. They need to be brought from death to life. And that can only happen through Jesus Christ. The Messiah has the power as God to resurrect and heal our souls from the dead. It is in him and him alone that we will find out who we are meant to be. We cannot understand the reality, the metaphysical reality in which we exist. We can't understand ourselves. We can't understand who we were meant to be apart from Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, our God and King. Well, I am feeling significantly more clarified in a lot of things um, after the this series. And I think it's always good for us to come back to this. I mean, it's it's good. We, we kind of alternate between different um, needs as you see them in the congregation. And obviously this series is something that everyone in the world's dealing with of feeling like 
there's just nonsense and confusion everywhere. So we really love that you've been spending so much time focusing on this. Um, next week, we're starting our brand new series, but we still have Sunday before then where you're going to kind of wrap up um, this whole series on nonsense yes. and a neat little bow um, <laughs> and send it off before we move into Get Up and Go, which is about activating your faith faith and doing something with it. So um, we're really excited about that. Please join us on Sunday here at beautiful Boise, Idaho, Foothills Christian Church for the end of nonsense. Thank you, everyone. And I can't wait for the Get Up and Go series.